Hi folks, my name is Chris Smith, Director of My Prosperity, and welcome to another awesome episode of Wow Crowd. We are pumped today to be joined by arguably Australia's most recognised businesswoman. She founded the iconic Boost Juice with her husband, Jeff. She's an entrepreneur, mother of four kids, best-selling author, podcaster, media personality, and in her spare time, loves yoga, surfing, skiing, and life in general. In fact, that's her motto, love life. Here to share her amazing story is Janine Ellis. Welcome, Janine. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. So, Janine, look, before we get into the success with business, um, I thought it'd be good if we rewind back to the days before Juice. For people who don't know your background, and I'm assuming a lot of people do, but you previously described yourself as a sheltered suburban girl who took off overseas for, I think, three months, only to return somewhere seven years later as a single mum with virtually no money. Can you take us through those early formative years before you went into business? Oh, look, I think, um, God, what's it to tell? My whole, my, I was brought up in the suburbs of um, Ferntragalli in Baronia. So my whole life was about netball, you know, what was, you know, that was sort of my whole, you know, existence. I went to a tech school. Now, these days people would think I'm a, a computer guru, but a tech school back then was actually teaching how to do sheet metal and woodwork and graphics and, you know, really basically creating you to become a, um, an apprentice or getting into the workforce. So in actual fact, my whole existence being brought up was to be the leader. You know, my mother was a 50s housewife and she thought that her role of her daughters was to actually support her husband in their field and, and raise children. And, and so it was really interesting being brought up in, as, as that you are going to be the supporter to never really believing it and really just wanting to um, to know that there was more. And for me, I was never that entrepreneur. I was never that person that sold lemonade, lemonade stand, didn't even know anyone that had the business, didn't even know anyone who went to university. Um, but I was an adventurer. And so it was really that time at 21 years old after working three jobs, including, uh, you know, nightclub door, bitch, um, to, um, to working in advertising, to, you know, all sorts of jobs just to earn enough money to travel. And so 21 years old, backpack on my back, on my own. Um, you got to remember back then there was no, you know, Wi-Fi. There was no Facebook. There was no mobile phones. So I was literally a young, naive girl going overseas and having a crack. And so I worked for um, San Francisco Girl Scouts as a counsellor nanny in France. I sold timeshare in Portugal and ended up scoring a job <laughs> on a uh, David Bowie's yacht in the south of France. Which I worked for him for a couple of years so it was, you know, and the thing is, so I look back at those formative years and go, God, they taught me a lot about business. You know, first and foremost was that there's always a solution to a problem because being a fairly young, naive girl travelling around the world, you get yourself into all sorts of problems which, you know, had, you know, physical and um, and mental uh, uh, damage if you actually didn't survive and didn't solve those problems. And the second thing actually it taught me was, you know, working with, living with, rock stars and movie stars on yeah, Bowie's boat was that people are people. And so when eventually, you know, years later after I, I left that stewardess job, you know, and I was thrown into the world of business, I never felt uh, better or worse than anyone in the room. I always thought myself as, you know, I've got a lot to learn. The person in front of me can teach me. I'm sure that everyone I have a meeting with can teach me something. And, um and were they all there for a purpose? And I think that was one of the most best experiences rubbing shoulders with the rich and famous is that they were just people. And so I think many people go into a room, in some respects, people think they're smarter or 
wealthier or better informed, but in actual fact, everyone in a room, if you're in that room, have something to contribute. And that really set me up to go, okay, I'm going to ask lots of questions, but I never felt less than. Yeah, great. You mentioned uh, developing a sense of adventure, but you also mentioned their naivety. Mm. So those two aspects coming to business, I mean, how did, how did that play out, particularly naivety? I mean, that's oh, look, there was two things that made, that helped get the success of Boost Juice off the ground. First and foremost was naivety. <laughs> um, you know, I didn't know that you couldn't open 100 stores in four years, and we did. I didn't know that, you know, someone with absolutely no experience in business can open a, a juice bar in another state that never lived and actually make it work. Yeah, so I didn't know a lot. But that enabled us, enabled me not to put a ceiling on what we could or couldn't achieve. We just did it. So we 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 uh, threw all these BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goals out there, and um, just hit them only because failure wasn't an option. So that was the first thing. So naivety played a huge part, and the ability to learn. Like I was just this absolute student sponge, and I'd go cough for coffee with people and you know try and pick everyone's brain. Um, the second one was fear. You know, and I think that people see fear as a negative, but it can be an enormous motivator. So by the time I started to know enough about business to know actually how we had got ourselves into a point where we had probably more debt than we could we we couldn't pay off in five lifetimes if it failed. So suddenly fear was a huge motivator to actually not fail. And um, you know, you, you get thrown. When I started to learn, I knew that. Four, and five, four out of five businesses failed in the first five years. So I went, okay, I'm not going to be one of those businesses. Um, you know, so fear was an um, incredible motivator, as was naivety. Yeah, the, I've heard you speak previously and you often talk about the ceiling and this, this aspect of having no barriers. And like a lot of entrepreneurs, they have this self-belief. I, I, I remember in the days well, when I first met Rod Drury, who was a founder of Zero, and I had breakfast with him and he talked about the fact that Zero would one day be a household brand, that it was going to be the market leader. He had no basis for that belief, but it was kind of something that really drew me in. And I'm interested, did you conceive how successful Boost would become from those early days of, you know, doing the juices in the kitchen or was, was it something that you just felt you were just going to you were just gonna nail it from the beginning? Take us through that. Look, I, th- I think you're right. I think we just... Like I still don't think we're there yet. I don't think we ever think we're there yet. You know, an early investor came in which, in the name of um, Jeff Harris who at the time had 1,600 stores and was a huge worldwide success. And so for me I was like going, okay, well, we are these mignons compared to my only other example which is, you know, Flight Centre. So I think it was I didn't really um, ponder too much on how big we're going to get or what we're going to do, I was really concerned in the, I was really concerned about opening the next store on time. I was concerned about is, are my teams running as efficiently as possible? I was concerned about um, making sure that we have the, the, the model that we're working on is this really solid model. So I never sort of sat back and went, oh, are we there yet? Are we successful? Have I reached my goals? Have I didn't really honestly think about that. A bit like probably the zero guy just went, I've just got to, you know, achieve what I need to do today because at the end of the day our end goal was um, to be the world's most loved and wanted brand. Some of those challenges in the early days, I'm keen to know because we've got an audience here, of course, of accounts and advisors. Did you get a lot of advice in those early days around some of those challenges, particularly, I, I, you know, I'm interested in your views of knowing the numbers, um, which is obviously critical, but um, 
But how did advisors help you in those early days in overcoming some of those challenges? Look, I found um, some of the advices were horrific in the early days. Um, you know, I if you looked at my accounts at start, I pretty much was Miss Basic. It was I need to get more money in than more money than, than money out, right? <laughs> and actually, back my my accounts was literally basically a cash book. Um, but in actual fact, those fundamentals are key. You know, these accountants come in and say, okay, let's do um, you know, negative cash flow and we look at this and we'll look at that. And there's all these trick ways of actually doing business. At the end of the day, is the business, it's only about cash in the bank, is the only thing that's real. That's the only thing that is real. And so I go back to the early days. I, I mean, I did everything. I didn't have any understanding of accounting. Uh, I left school at 16 and, you know, I can make a really good wooden birdcage. But, um, you know, the difference between debit and credits wasn't something I was aware of. However, um, I made sure I did the accounts from the start. And so I never wanted to be in a position in my business that I didn't know enough about everything, that no one was indispensable. And so, you know, I set up all the accounts. I was doing all the accounts. I then finally passed it on to a financial controller, which who completely stuffed it up. Um, and then I actually thought, okay, I need some, some good advice here. I went to a top accountant for accounting firm who came in. They charged me um, $70,000. And you might not think that's a lot then, but that for me was a whole store and it was a lot of money back then when we were you know, running on the smell of an oily rag and basically ripped me off. They achieved nothing. They um, put all these expenses in and I said, well, where's the outcome? And they went, well, we, we're charging you by time. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I found, um, I found that there was a lot of people out there that didn't really understand what it's like to run a business and there was a lot of uh, poor consultants out there. So, um, but equally, as the time goes by, I have now come across some really dynamic forward-thinking advisors. And, you know, in any industry, you know, people watching today, there are the guns and there's ones that need to actually really look at themselves and actually have some empathy and really start to um, really start to work with their clients. There was another accounting firm, again, another top four, and uh, he he just saw me as this this little wifey poo that was had a little hobby, which was a juice bar, and he set the business up incredibly poorly and it cost me a lot of money to get it right. But, you know, when I asked him years later, I said, why did you set up like this? He said, well, I just thought it was a hobby. <laughs> so, you know, there was so there's a few things that sort of, you know, came down the trip along the path that um, could have been a lot easier for my journey if I got the right people at the right times. And, look, you tried it. You know, you try and go to the top level people, but that's not necessarily where the answer is. And it's really those accountants and advisors that really stop to understand the business and it's not just about how many hours can I charge you. The, it's really interesting because, uh, you know, you related to the fact that you changed accounts recently and with all of the benefit of the 20 years knowledge you've built in business, I'm really keen to understand, A, the motivation, um, because I'm, I'm sure in recent times you would have had better advice as you went along the journey, but particularly today you mentioned innovation and, and how it's changed. What, what specifically... Um, were you looking for when you're looking, you know, in recent times looking to change advisors? Yeah. For me, it's really simple. I need someone to be on the same path as I am. In other words, if they have a line, is there a better way I will find it? 
Now, if they are, my previous accountants were pretty much, um, we've done it this way for a long time and despite the fact that every financial year it was this, you know, hard slog of trying to work out what was done a year ago and, you know, nightmare-type stuff, to the new accountant who is, okay, here are the latest uh, documents that you can use. Here are the latest systems and processes you can use to make your life as automated as possible. And so it really is a breath of fresh air to be with new accountants who are going, okay, we're going to work with you to um, make your life as streamlined as possible. Because, look, as we know that as soon as a human gets involved, errors occur. So, no, we've, we've, the, the current accountants that we're with, are, you know, we're you know, very happy with because they are going, how do we make your life as easy as possible? And then at the end of financial year, it's a smooth transition. You, um, we've grown up in different worlds. My background is 30 years technology and I've seen the journey of technology and the impact of advice on advice. I think you're referring to here as, and you would have seen the change 20 years ago. I mean, you talked 30 years ago without mobile phones, so we're in the same sort of generation. But particularly the, the shift in advice over the last 10 years, has it been very much around that technology shift and how that's automated a lot of things? I mean, I'm really interested for someone like you who have, who's actually grown up through that, that shift. What, what's changed? What's, what's much better? Is it tech? Yeah, look, it is tech. I mean, I've a, despite the fact that I didn't grow up with a mobile phone, um, I've always had that view of if there's a better way, I'll find it. And so as soon as tech was invented, invented as soon as tech came in, um, I was an early adopter. So for me, it was like, great, this will be my answer to my challenge, to my to my prayers. How do I make my life as efficient as possible? Because you've got to remember back when I started Boost Juice Bars, I had three little children under three. I had a, um, a husband that had a high executive role and so I couldn't rely on him with help and I was starting a whole new startup business. So I had to, I had no choice but to find most efficient ways of doing things or I would have drowned and some days I did. So um, I was an early adopter. The problem being an early adopter was that, as you would appreciate, back then there was over-promise, under-deliver all the time. So despite the fact that it had all these promises, it's only now in the last probably five years that truly the tech is doing what it's saying it's going to do and it's reliable and, you know, the, a lot of the bugs are out of it. So, you know, now, God, it's it's a compared to what it was like 20 years ago when I started the business trying to get efficiencies, you know, we're now truly seeing efficiencies in tech. Fantastic. And let's, let's step back and, and talk again about you. Um, you spent a number of years, obviously, in business and recently uh, involved with Shark Tank, uh, the Shark Tank as a judge, imparting some of your knowledge that you gained over the journey. Can you share some of your top tips for success in business? I'm particularly interested in uh, what you look for in budding entrepreneurs in terms of qualities that you, you seek out. Well, there's sort of the two the two elements you look for. In, what I look for is, is first and foremost is um, you look at the traits of the person. And as we know, Chris, uh, businesses have challenges that people wouldn't even know what, what challenges are going to come up. So you need to have a lot of grit and that ability to continue to embrace what goes wrong, learn from them, adjust and move forward. And there's just um, a lot of people out there who jump into their own business, go in with starry eyes and think it's going to be great, and then they go and get the Mercedes in their, their house in, you know, Aspen. 
Um, the reality is it's just not the case. You know, you've, you've got to have the grit to be prepared to do the hard yards, make mistakes, and actually be prepared not to take a return for years sometimes before you even say, see the benefits of all your hard work. So you, I'm really looking for that grit and that ability to for them to solve problems no matter what that problem is. The second thing I look for is the product itself. You know, it's all very well that their grandmother and their mother and their sister thinks that what they're doing is the greatest thing since sliced bread. But, you know, has the consumer said with their wallet that they want it? Yeah. And do they want it on a, a, an extended period of time? And without that, then really it's just a good idea. Yeah. Let's, um, I'm interested, you, you've obviously got an adventurous spirit um, formed through those early days travelling overseas. And, uh, more recently, I know your um, appearance on Survivor, I, I couldn't finish the interview without actually asking about that because in particular your training regime in the lead-up to that because you were so bloody ripped on that show. I mean, did you did you get help with that or was that something that you just decided you were going to get super fit for? I mean, it was uh, it was obviously a, a fun time for you to be involved in that. Oh, look, it was it was incredible. I don't think, I, yeah, I, I'm a, actually, I've done yoga probably for the last um, for the last 12, 13 years and the muscle tone that I have on my body is, is pretty much 100% yoga. Um, the yoga I do is just younger. Um, people think if you if you do a yoga at a gym or, or something sort of quite mild, you think that it's, uh, you know, you think it's a bit of a stretching exercise. Yeah. If you're actually doing a, a you know, a stunga or a really fairly strong yoga, it, it actually is quite holistic. And, you know, probably as you can see from Survivor, you know, there's lots of muscles on lots of spots that never used to have muscles. Um, it's just the fact that I had no fat on me that you actually could see them. I think normally they're well buried under, you know, a little bit of padding. Um, but Survivor was, you know, I think that it's, it's interesting, Chris, because I don't know about you, but I get up, I have my routine, I do what I need to do when I go to bed and I wake up the next day in a similar routine. And I think I'm, I'm a firm believer in life is, is spikes and, um, and really testing myself to be the best I can be. So the, the training regime I, I did was my yoga. I did a little bit of an eight-minute workout from um, a guy called Paul Taylor who um, set this program, which was literally eight minutes, but it's a really full-on eight minutes. Uh, he came and did some work with me with regard to just um, how you push through mentally because in actual fact the reality is the mind always goes before the body. And um, so that was, but that, I think that pranayama, which is the breathing technique of yoga and yoga was the ability, enabled me to sort of get through it. But it was a, um, you know, it was, was one of the best and worst times of my life. But uh, yeah, no, it was, it was crazy. It was crazy to say yes to, but, um, you know, really pleased I, I did it and survived it and didn't get the flesh eating spiders that some other people did. Good on you. <laughs> I have to ask also about your um your Mad Max Beach House on the Great Ocean Road now famously up for sale. I mean, why are you selling it? Look, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, COVID has has done a lot, made a lot of people reevaluate what they want in their lives, and it's and we're no different. Uh, we, you know, we were fortunate enough to get locked out, locked down in Noosa on the first lockdown in when Australia first sort of hit in March, and um, you know, yeah, no, poor me, you know. And, um, and I think what it did was we actually realised how amazing a life you could have with regard to nature, water, surfing, you know, all of those things. And we went, you know, we always thought that we were far too important, we need to be right near cities. And I think that um, we're not quite ready to move to a, a Noosa 
compartment, but we wanted to move into an area that had elements of it. And you know, so we looked at we're looking at the northern beaches of Sydney. So it's still close enough to the Sydney. Um, enables us to do all the work that we need to do, but still have that element of, you know, going for a boat ride or surfing or swimming every day in the ocean. And you know, so we sort of thought, okay, that's time to time to move. And then, you know, moving means that you know we're selling up in Melbourne. And but I don't think that selling that house was easy. I mean, we're still in the process. It, I cried like that house has been. We bought it before we started Boost. We couldn't afford it when we bought it. You know, we were um, we had to rent it for the first five years just so we could afford the mortgage. And it's been a house that made me the best person I could be. It was a place where I could be the mother that would play with my children, the wife that could talk to my husband, and the person that was, um, you know, just kept me sane. So it was. it has a lot of beautiful memories. So you bought it back in 2000. I remember when it was in the market because I was mentioned before the interview that I've driven past that house probably 2,000 times because getting down the coast. But bought it 20 years ago for 1.1 million. Did your financial advisor recommend you buy it or not? I'm curious. Not. 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 <laughs> no. In actual fact, in actual fact, they said it was a passive income or passive expense or passive asset. And they basically said, um, you know, beach houses and those, you know, don't get into beach houses and or because, you know, they're, they're, they're not liquid assets. But that's rubbish. So if anyone's watching this and you're telling people that, in actual fact, some of the best investments are actually the, um, particularly now Airbnb are around, some of those investments actually have a better return than, you know, that stable, you know, commercial property that's in the high street of, you know, a suburb, you know, so in actual fact, um, we've found that our best investments have been our lifestyle investments, you know, the ones that we've bought for our benefit, our joy, and um, we've got, we've had great returns. We had a place in Noosa recently that we got a good return from. Again, it was a lifestyle investment. So, um, yeah, no, I'm, I am, um, I think lifestyle investments are good because you can make money from them and enjoy them. <laughs> right. Well, finally, um You've mentioned in the past that you love what you do. You've got no plans to retire. So what does the future hold for you and the Alice clan? Look, I'm not sure about the Alice clan. We're all sort of out going on our own little journey. But, um, you know, for me, you know, I'm still trying to work out what I want to be grow up when I grow up. You know, so, you know, so, you know I've got a really, you know, interesting, um, a lot of interesting things in my life. You know, Retail Zoo is still very much part of my life. Um, I'm on some really interesting boards, whether that's API or Kogan.com, which I'm really excited about understanding more about, you know, e-commerce. Um, you know, I'm a, an ambassador for the UN, for UNHCR. So, you know, was going to, you know, that last year was supposed to be a big, you know, trip to Jordan to sort of understand more about that, but I'm looking forward to what's, what that leads ahead. And then certainly looking at, you know, keeping my ears and eyes open for that next opportunity to, you know, get the real juices flowing. But, uh, you know, so it's, it's um, you know, I don't think, I don't believe in retirement. I think that that's, you know, what, what do you do? Do you go to the shops and have a coffee? Like, and play golf? I can't play golf. <laughs> so, so, you know, so I don't think, I've, I think that life, um, I think um, Ben Crow, I think had Ben Crow on um, recently and he was talked about one of his seminars I looked at and he was talking about the six elements of happiness and part one of one of those is purpose and um, keeping the the mental stimulation going. And I think that I'm a firm believer in you do have to have a lot of different elements in your life 
you know, yes, you need to sit and relax, but you also need that mental stimulation of creation. And I think that, you know, I'm hoping to, to live to about 130. And so I'm hoping it, you know, I think at 130, I still want to be really active mentally and physically. Ladies and gentlemen, um, we've been on the Wellcraft joined by Janine Ellis. It's been awesome to hear your journey. Uh, so many great tips there, not just in terms of business, but life, and also for the advice industry, which of course our audience. So really thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So following on from that great interview with Janine, we've got a stellar expert panel to discuss our main topic of boosting your business performance. So firstly, I want to welcome to the panel Kate Keenan. Uh, Kate is a partner and chief brand officer at Sayers. Uh, who are a modern advisory and investment business. So prior to Sayers, um, Kate co-founded and led the launch of Judo Bank. Uh, they're an SME challenger to the banks and, and one of Australia's startup unicorns. Her creative brand building expertise, strong leadership, communications and business analytical skills developed over <clears throat> a 25 year career, both in Australia and in London, make her the perfect startup material for this, this session. She also loves getting out uh, to the great outdoors, has three young boys. Uh, we're also joined by the passionate uh, David Boyer. He joined Change GPS as GM of Growth and now CEO to drive the development of the industry after having founded SQL CFO uh, and co-hosting from the Trenches, Australia's number two iTunes business podcast. David's one of the youngest fellow chartered accountants in Australia. He loves using accounting to help Aussie mums and dads and so much so that he did a TEDx talk on that very subject. And finally, we welcome Trevor uh, Gordon. Um, he's the Managing Director of Blue Rock Accounting. Uh, Blue Rock is an entrepreneurial advisory firm providing a range of services to high growth businesses. With a background in strategic planning, corporate finance and business advisory services, Trevor has a passion for connecting people and helping business owners grow their business. Welcome, uh, a very warm welcome to the Wellcrown to you all. How good was that interview with Janine? It was really cool. I think there are a lot of great themes in there, Chris. Yeah, Some great themes. There's a lot to unpack, right? So, look, I mean, today's theme is all about boosting business performance. And interestingly, Janine attributes the success of Boost Juice uh, to her naivety and fear, which are actually two traits that pretty much sum up my entire career. Um, <laughs> she also, she mentioned that one of the key characteristics she looks for in an entrepreneur is grit and determination. So. I have to ask this question for you guys, all as advisors. If a mum of three kids comes to you with an idea seeking, um, you know, uh, basically seeking debt that would, you know, take five lifetimes to pay back, um, they're naive, <laughs> they're scared, but they have plenty of grit. Do you take them on as a client? We'll start with you, Kate. Well, <clears throat> I'll correct you. I'm, I'm not an advisor, but I, I'm obviously in the advising business. Um, from my experience, Yes, because a mum of three children who's passionate about something and wants to get cracking has all the right skills and uh, courage, I think, that it takes to start up a business. So from, from, for me, I'd, I'd back her. Oh, I, I just reminded the old saying, the risk takers get the rewards. And if you're not taking risks, you, you kind of don't make your own luck. But I think it's always about balancing risk. So... For me, I'd certainly make sure I take the time to care about the person and sit down and really be really, you know, intensely curious about what they're trying to achieve, what problem they're trying to solve, 
you know, how much work they've done already around understanding their, their direction and um, make sure as an advisor, at least invested that amount of effort to, to, to road test that with them. And then really depending upon that, you've either got to kind of take them on um, and, and support them on the journey or, or ask them, you know, or send them in a direction where they could do a bit more homework and, and, and use their own resources and come back to you um, at that point. Yeah, it's a good point. And David, what are your thoughts? I think grit's an interesting topic at the start of 2021 because if you got through 2020, you just played it. So it's kind of, unfortunately, grit's been a bit commoditized. It's not so unique anymore. Um, I, I think that when you, you know, let's assume we don't know how Boost Juice ends because if you do, then you'd be mad not to take on Janine as a client in the early days. Um, but I think you need to think about yourself and where your practice is at at that point in time. Startup clients and high growth clients are fantastic. They're also unscalable, unbelievably demanding and require quite the, like the top of the tree expertise very often. It's very rare that advisors can take on too many of those clients. Definitely small practices struggle. So it's as much about where you are, how good your practice is in terms of its internal processes, service standards, as much as it is about backing the grit of the individual client. Yeah, I'm gonna we're gonna come back to that a little bit because I think it's really important to, to drill into this. But I think she spoke about you know a big accounting firm, and I, I want to I want to look at the advice side of it in terms of her perception. But she talked about a you know accounting firm giving her advice, and years later reflecting on the fact that they saw her business as a hobby, and I think she referred to herself as a wifey poo, which is uh, obviously not a very appropriate term for female entrepreneur. But that was her words. Um, and I know myself, uh, and David, you'd know in the early days of zero. So we. You know, like in the early days of running Zero, I could sense that our banker at the time was pretty sceptical about us as a going concern. You know, we're losing money. I think we're scraping about 1.2 million in annualised revenue in Australia. And I think winding the clock forward 10 years, I think they'd be a little embarrassed to see how they misread that situation. In fact, even, even after five years, we're doing 100 times that revenue. So it was a big growth story. So, I mean, I'm interested, how often does that happen in advice? I'm keen to hear from you guys, you know, as advisors on, you know, we talked about weighing up risk and opportunity when it comes to that sort of starry-eyed client that comes in with huge ambitions and starting from scratch. You know, what are the what are the other traits you look for? How do you assess them? You know, and do you sometimes get it wrong? Oh, Trevor, I'd be surprised if you disagree with this. There's a very simple thing, which is how well can they articulate the problem they solve? <laughs> and it is it's it's in every business book. It's if you watch Shark Tank, it comes up every time. And so few people are actually really good at answering it succinctly. So for me, straight away, you get my attention if, if I can see that problem that you solve and I can understand the, what the business is. Um, and then I think it's about making somebody comfortable that um, as a business owner, you're a safe pair of hands. Um, I knew a lot of the zero people in the early days, Chris, and, and you, there was track record. There was runs on the board in the leadership group. There was um, this big incumbent in a competitor in MYOV. Um, and I remember... Uh, I probably can't say, but I was a banker at NAB and I did a stint in NAB corporate when they were looking at doing a financing deal at MIB around the time Zero just started. And I was on a comment, but I remember sitting there thinking, there's this big thing coming that these guys aren't, is anybody, and I didn't want to, you know, these big heavy corporate bankers with more expensive suits than me, I didn't want to speak up on that one. But I felt like the, the advisor didn't understand the entire market the business was in. And that's, I think, a huge risk for advisors when choosing to take somebody on, like it, like at the level we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah, and I'd only add to that. I mean, you've really got to understand, you know, a, a, a clear articulation of the problem. But 
you know, why are they doing what they're doing? Why is this mm. important to them? Because when the chips come down, most people will refer back to, well, why am I here? What, what, what is my belief system around this? Um, why will I stick at this when it gets tough? What, what's going to draw the grit and determination, you know, out of out of me or out of out of the client? And I think you're right, David. What sort of track record? How much homework have they done? Do they appreciate what's in front of them? Are they wise enough to be thinking around, thinking about who they might need around them? Um, and I think it's that kind of holistic view and spending time with the person. You can't make those decisions or assessments in half an hour, you actually have to spend time and really dig a bit deeper with them um, before you make that judgment as to whether you're going to take them on. Yeah. Change GBS is big fans of taking people out for wines and steaks to get to know them, Trev. So <laughs> next time I'm in Melbourne, I'll hit you up. Oh, that's yeah. fine. I'm happy to spend time that way. But I, I think time's an important commodity as a professional. We've, you, you know, it's scarce, okay? We've only got so much um, perhaps in a day, but you need to not dismiss people, you need to dig a bit deeper and ask yourself, challenge yourself, why am I saying no to this person? Have I got good valid reasons or am I just, you know, taking the easy way out on, on this one because I don't have the skills to, to help them or, or can I connect them with somebody who I can in my community help them, help them go forward? This might be a bit of a brutal addition, but an important question is can they pay me? Yeah. Uh, you, your business is not your charity. No. You, you have to work out how you're going to get paid because these businesses are always more demanding than you expect. They yep. take And they take partner time. Um, so how they're going to get paid is important. And maybe you look at your practice and say, well, you know what, realistically, I can take on one of these. Uh, and But I think we get a bit lazy sometimes as advisors and we think oh, I'm doing this because I'm going to get a client for life if I help them now. Mm-hmm. They'll refer me to their friends. You Really, you only have what's in front of you right now. So uh, I think everyone needs to be warned that this whole work for a startup and maybe get some equity, maybe get the big fees later on. I think Trevor's smiling because he might know that doesn't always pan out. No, no. It's very much a portfolio approach and you have to consider it in the context of your practice. I guess, though, for Blue Rock and, and our business, if you're serious about helping entrepreneurial business owners, part of your business model has to be that you're going to have some wins and losses in that space and if these are the types of clients and um, uh, business owners that you want to work with then how do you make that how do you make that happen and how do you make that make that work yeah let's um let's just shift gears a little bit because Janine spent quite a bit of time talking about her experience with advisors and in fact there was a point in that interview where if I stopped recording I think it would have the whole interview would have represented a bit of a stain on the advice sector because Janine spoke quite openly about some of her negative experience with advisors, describing some of them as horrific. Um, you know, she talked about setting up wrong structures, you know, even in her terms, ripping her off, but seemingly, you know, three or even perhaps four attempts at advice before she finally got it right. So it seems that her previous advisors, the, the thing I took from that was they probably made things more complicated than they needed to. And do you think this is an issue in the advice industry? You know, has it improved? I mean, how do you ensure that advice hits the mark that it's understood and that clients get value? I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but um, over to you guys to respond on that. I think there's, there will always be good and bad advice. It's kind of the nature of the professional services industry or any, any industry particularly. But I guess the job of the advisor is to kind of, for the client, make the complex simple and the simple compelling, but not actually compromise the, the quality or the commerciality um, of it. And, and I think as an industry, certainly the accounting space, we've improved on that. 
um, you know, steadily and, 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 and a lot over the past few years. But I guess for me, you've always got to ask yourself, do I have a clear understanding of what the problem the client is trying to solve? Um, have I really road tested the solution that I'm suggesting? Have I th thought about all the alternatives? Can I really explain that to the client? Can I really make them buy in and understand why we're doing what we're doing and why we're suggesting we go a certain way? And then you can have a great professional relationship with any client. You've got to be checking in along the way and making sure that they're feeling part of the process and, 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 and validating what you're doing as you go. Putting wearing my change GPS hat on very clearly, I and mean, we literally yep. specialise in producing reports that, in plain English, explain sometimes complicated advice mm -hmm. to clients. And I think part of I think Janine's experience was the accountant or the advisor genuinely thought they were doing the right thing, yeah, couldn't explain it. And, and to Janine's absolute credit, she had the intelligence to work out it was bad advice, which at times saved her business. Um, and so I think for, for we, we believe it's very important. And let's be honest, accountants, brilliant with numbers, not the best wordsmiths in the world. And that's okay. But at this level of advisory work, it is important to be able to convey what your advice is, the value to the, to the client, and very clearly what they need to do to take action. And that, sometimes we fall short on that and probably should take some responsibility. Yeah, and I quite often ask, you know, clients, you know, are you comfortable? Do you understand why we're doing it? In a very subtle way, you have to road test and get that two-way feedback back. And and when you don't get that, you know, intuitive or absolute clear understanding that they they're not sure what they're why we're doing this, I think you've got to you've got to you've got to hit pause and, and silence and, is deafening. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 right. I know our advisors talk a lot about sitting on the client's side of the table, so not sitting across from them, actually sitting beside them, really understanding what's happening in their business, clearly articulating what their purpose is and their ambition for the future so that then they can really truly provide them with the advice that they need in order to achieve that. So I think sitting on their side of the table is a, is a big one. It's not just offering solutions and coming up with the same products that you have in your little suitcase or briefcase. I think it's, it's very much understanding the needs of the client. I think that's an awesome point, Kate, because sometimes one of the things I do when I'm, you know, working with other directors or other senior people and get to go to a client meeting, I actually act as if I am the client. And I ask the questions that I think if the client's not asking them, I'll ask them of my guys and say, well, what about this? Have you considered that? So we're actually forcing more comprehension and understanding and showing the value and the reasons why we're doing something. So you can play both roles um, mm. in a meeting or in a team situation. Trevor, I hope you don't think I'm putting you on the spot, but I think this would be valuable. Uh, how do you actually think like a client? If we knew how to do it, we'd all be doing it. Well, I mean, I, I guess I take the simple approach. I just think, well, if this was my business in this situation and with this problem, listening to this advice, would I would I be prepared to spend the money or in, or invest? Do I actually understand it myself as I'm hearing it? come out of my mouth or out of the words of my advisors. So I think you really just have to place yourself in the, in the shoes of the, of the client and, and make it your decision. Are you going to take that advice that we're giving? Would you take the advice we're giving the client? And then and you've got a fair bit of honesty. You've got to, you've got to be honest. I'd love to get your thoughts, just shift gears a little bit, um, yep. how you think advice has changed over the years, especially with the help of technology. You know, it was great to hear Janine get really passionate about how technology has, in fact, automated and streamlined her business. Um, and particularly that from the early days of over-promising, under-delivering, she feels the last five years, in fact, that 
technology is actually doing what it's supposed to, which is actually good to hear for some of us on this call who are in tech. Um, yeah. So for clients like Janine, I mean, how much do you think technology now plays a part the, you know, in assessing and weighing up your services as an advisor? Well, let's, let's, do, it, let's do two types of advice. Um, the advice needed to improve the performance of the business and the advice needed to look after Janine and her family's wealth. Two very, very different skill sets. And unfortunately, legally, on the wealth side, many accountants can't even do it anymore uh, because of the, the elimination of the accountant's exemption, which is a great crying shame that I hope every single accountant representative in Canberra is lobbying very hard to get back. I'm not sure they are, but I hope they are. Uh, because in many cases, the accountant is the right person to have that conversation just, just because of trust. Um, and that's unfortunate that we aren't able to play in that space at the moment. Technology um, on the business improvement side, can you imagine you'd have to, imagine it's 15 years ago and you have to drive out to your client, boot up their 484 PC, pull up some report. You have no idea whether it's complete or not. You wouldn't even know if a bank rate's done and try to advise them on improving gross margins. It just wasn't even, it wasn't even within the realm of possibility um, that, that you'd ever do that. They could never afford the time for it and it, it was just never done. So the only reason this conversation's even asked is because you can get live data by staying in your office. And, and I think that's a monumental shift in advisory for mum and dad businesses in Australia and large businesses as well. Just, I'm interested, Kate, you know, thinking about tech, do you think, you know, from, from your branding experience, I mean, that's, is that an important kind of aspect of how you present sales or, indeed, you know, advice generally? Do you think that's become mm. prominent? Absolutely. In fact, it's it's the fundamental foundation for, for our business, both on the business advisory side and the wealth and family high net worth advisory side. So tech plays a role across the whole gamut of advice that we offer. Um, and in fact, we've partnered with a, a leading tech firm in Silicon Valley to ensure that we have access to the, to the greatest emerging tech to be able to offer to our clients, both on the family wealth side and the business advisory side. And also having those two advisory um, offerings under the one roof means that we can actually look at a business and see if there's value that can be created there that can add to their personal wealth or vice versa, they can um, realise some value in their personal wealth to grow their business. So <clears throat> absolutely, tech is a is a foundational part to the way that we run our business and that it's applied to every single client that we work with. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's like, it's so broad. It's, it's changed the client experience, the way we collaborate, the way we work with them. We're working on live files, live data together. Um, it's changed the way we need to speed up our responses and, and service clients. It's, it's automated um, and made more efficient what was the mundane. It's made our clients more sophisticated, so they're expecting more from us as advisors. So we need to be exposing ourselves to the, to the technology and the tools that have us, you know, have better, provide better data and, and um, be able to give clients insights about their business and, and add value. So I think this is the challenge of the, of the industry is moving up the value chain from being, you know, our services are being commoditized rapidly or if they haven't been already. And, and you know, we have to kind of also ask ourselves, well, what are the types of advisors that we want to hire and recruit and how we train and develop people to work with clients? Are they technologists with business skills or are they graduate accountants coming through the system? So it's, 
it's obviously it's obvious to say it's a massive structural change, but there's there's so many different elements to our business now and, and the way we work with clients that it needs to be considered. But what's what's interesting, I think, over the years is that it's never been more important in terms of how how the industry presents itself and how advisors do. You know, if you think about financial service professionals, you've got that classic image of the the cardigan wearing accountant. And David, no offence, I know you've got a great wardrobe of cardigans. Uh, and arguably the tarnished... My dad does. My dad's 41 years in public practice and looks fantastic. You know, a nice, <laughs> light knit. Them. But coming back, so you right. arguably you've got tarnished financial advisors. You, you, you know, you've got this old image of accounts, tarnished financial advisors, you know, potentially from the, as a result of the Royal Commission. So moving forward, I'm keen to know, and this is probably one for you, Kate, given your branding background, but what yeah. are the sorts of things that firms can do to change that perception and how... How can they lift their brand and image in a way that appeals, particularly through a you know a changing demographic that's 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 going to be more switched on to tech leading or you know whatever it is? But what are your thoughts there, Kate? Well, I think they need to go shopping to start with. Um, try and buy a new cardigan or maybe even a check blazer. Um, so really, it's back to tech, firstly, and I think in the wealth space having that whole of wealth view on one platform is mm. really powerful. Yep. And we're certainly looking at, at that at the moment and working with our great partners to do so. Um, but that whole of wealth view on your phone, you know, really simple and really easy where they can see very clearly exactly where they are at any point in time across their whole portfolio. So tech's a big one. Um, and in terms of the younger demographic, obviously that applies as well. But I think maybe it's just again back to understanding their purpose and and really sitting on their side of the table i think those two are really important where it doesn't feel like you're providing a solution you're not there to say well here's our products i think this one best fits what you're telling me actually as you were saying trevor you know really trying to sit in their seat and saying if, if i was you is this the product that i would want yeah. and if i was you is this the service that i would want and would i am i actually a good fit for your business or to your point again trevor should i refer you to someone who's actually a better place to serve your needs so i think i think the changing needs of business and and as dave said too in terms of COVID, you know we have hardened up a bit and we are a little bit more focused on you know just getting the job done and doing it well and 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 i think um Tech, as I said, plays a massive role and, and just being agile and being able to adapt and sitting on their side of the table. It's really important. Uh, yeah. Just a quick comment about the cardigan wearers. Which <laughs> the compliance cardigan wearers. Compliance is not dead, David. It's an important role to play, guys. It's got to get done, right? Well, first of all, even, even and Trevor, I don't know if you want to share this, but even in some of the most cutting-edge practices, lodging a tax return on an annual set of accounts is 75 80% of revenue still. Um, so I see that across the board in many places. Blue Rock might be the extreme exception. I think Blue Rock likes being the outlier on the separate, uh, something different there. But for these practices, part of the reason that, that maybe tech isn't adopted is they're sitting there very happy with the amount of cash they're taking out of their business, very happy with their net profit margins, very satisfied 25, 30-year-old customer relationships, and they don't have the burning, the seat's not burning until they think about what happens in 10 years. Yeah. And that's scary for a lot of people. So I think there's this really interesting spot with this part of the accounting and advisor world. Um, no one's ever happy with what an accounting, accounting company's worth, you know, 0.8, 1.3 times, whatever. Nobody's ever satisfied. It just, it just is what it is. But I think technology 
is a part of getting the best you possibly can out of that if those older practices or more mature practices are thinking about what happens in the next decade. Yeah, and I think we are, we have, and we are seeing the emergence of a new type of professional services firm that is prepared to embrace it. Our firm was founded in 2008 with eight people. It's not an old firm. It's 2021. There are 220 people here who um, are really agile, fast. They've got a clear purpose, a belief system about why we're doing what we're doing. And the those other firms that may be sitting on that space that you know like most business cycles that the, the time horizon will come so we we you have to be pushing forward and have the seat burning to your point um david and i think the other part about changing um perception of is you is you have to change the way you think which then changes the way you act, which changes the way you behave. And you have to hire people, have people in your organisation that have common belief systems and values around those things because that's how you change perceptions. We're, we're, we're people working with people, so it has to come from a belief system and a set of values, I think, that builds a brand, I, I, I guess, Kate, but a, but a brand without people who don't believe in it and who don't have a belief system around that. It, it probably doesn't stack up in the in, in the long run. Back to purpose. And yeah. with purpose comes values and with values comes behaviour. And, yep. you know, your brand is your business is your brand. And so the way you think, talk and act impacts your brand and and also helps to shape your business going forward. Yeah. And, and David, I don't mind sharing where, where we sit. Um, it's about 55-45, so it's 55% compliance, 45% advisory. Now, the challenge is if you live in that space and you're driving advisory revenue, you have to be thinking like an advisor and that puts you in the client's shoes. So you've got to find advisors out there who have to live like a business owner, not relying on annuity income all the time, but having to make it work and act as if there's the, they have to make decisions and do things. That's a great point. You guys have summed it up really well. You know, a lot of it's technology-led, but it is actually really focusing on the brand. So, you know, I think it's a great conversation. Hey, I just want to, I've got a couple of questions left and I just have a bit of fun here. Now let's talk about Janine's Beach House on the Great Ocean Road, right? So do you recommend lifestyle assets or not? Just keen to, to, to go around here because it was an interesting chat. I, I, I think if a lifestyle asset is a goal, it then becomes an ambition and then uh, a client will make the choices or the sacrifices or conduct their behaviours to achieve it. And I think your job as an advisor is to sort of show them the pathway to there and maybe how to get there and then actually kind of support them and, and on the journey to, to do it. I, don't, I, don't, I know Janine made some comments about them being good returns. I, I probably don't focus on the returns so much. They're, they're, they're non-financial returns to me. Well, her returns was... What did she say? She was raised with kids better. Yeah. I mean, that's put a, right. put a price tag on that, right? I mean, no, 100%. Yeah. I'm, I, again, I'm not an advisor, but my personal view is when you're an entrepreneur, you work so hard and there has to be a reward. And if that reward doesn't give you a financial return, um, but it gives you peace, happiness, time with your family, a place to refresh your mind, then it's very valuable. I think if we didn't have tall poppy syndrome in Australia, we wouldn't even be asking this question. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a very it's good point. I, I admitted 
that I've driven past it many times. It was purchased for 1.1 million in 2000. It's on the market for 11. So I think nice. that's uh, it's a good balance. <laughs> well, we should celebrate success today. Yeah. That's right. Yes. Finally, finally, I just want to conclude with a really broad topic, and I'll go around to each of you, but I just want to get your tips on boosting business performance as it relates to advising, particularly in this year of 2020, which um, we're hoping to come out. So, Dave, I'm going to start with you. Boosting business performance as it relates to advisors. I think it starts with the advisor. Um, it's very hard to advise if you're actually not in a good place. It's very hard to, to, to think about other people's success if you're you're not strong. And I think that advisors need to be in healthy, strong positions. They need to look after their health and look after their mental health um, because it can be very demanding and very often clients will put their financial anxiety onto you. Um, and we do worry about the mental health of accountants, particularly during um, COVID and JobKeeper changes. It was unbelievably tough. Um, and so I think you need to fundamentally look after yourself. And then I actually need to think you need to decide if you want this. Do you want those sort of clients? I think there's tremendous benefit in doing it. I think it's fun. Um, my practice was 100% virtual CFO and I loved it. Um, but, geez, I wouldn't mind a fair amount of, you know, knowing that money was coming in for tax returns every month as well. And, um, and, and actually, I ended up making that call and started doing it. And that's what led me to change GPS because I, I, I didn't have any resources to get started. And, and I want a big client using GPS and ended up here. So... Think about yourself and your business and your family um, because sometimes with these clients, um, I have no doubt Janine was on the phone talking to some of her clients at 11 o'clock at night. So if you want that, go for it. Trevor. Uh, look, I, I, I follow a few simple rules. Just be really clear on your, your purpose and, and why you're doing what you're doing and your belief system. I think that helps you guide the type of work you want to do and who you want to work with. And I think if you can connect those things and you've got the, the passion and, and the commitment to do it, you, you, you will boost performance just naturally of um, putting yourself in that space. And I think um, making sure you've got the right people around you in your community to support what you're doing that have a similar belief system. Um, and I find businesses just generally boost themselves or, or go well off those foundations. So as a follow-on to that, you know, what, what would the tips be to build a brand around an advisory uh, business, for example? Kate, I mean, that's, that's a, a great one for you. It is a great one for me. Thanks, Chris, given that we did this only in November last year when we launched Sayers. So we spent a lot of time sitting around a table talking about, well, actually, why are we here? Like, why have we started this business? And also addressing what are the gaps in the market? What do we feel clients are missing out on? And what could we do with a blank sheet of paper to actually solve for that? So we spent a lot of time on, on, on that and also on really what our purpose is and making sure that that purpose could stack up in 15 or 20 years' time, that that was something that was very true and dear to all of us and also played into all our own personal values because I think that's really important. You can create a great set of values, but if it isn't aligned to the people who are in the room and who are creating this business, then it's very hard to make that stick. So our values, we've got five key values. They're around relationships. They're around being good and doing good. They're around doing what you say and progress over perfection, which is a big one, I think, too. So progress over perfection, which is hard for me because I am a bit of a perfectionist. <laughs> um, so, but, but really actually saying, you know, 80% is okay and we just need to keep moving. So um, let's keep moving and let's keep focused on the end goal 
Um, and that's really always constantly reminding ourselves of why we're here. So, um, so yeah, that would be my advice. All right, so look, we're going to have to leave it there. Look, again, I, I want to thank our panellists for sharing their experiences, insights. We had Kate Keenan from Sayers, David Boyd, Change GPS, Trevor Gordon from the Blue Rock. Thanks for being part of the Wow Crowd, and thank you for all joining us today on uh, the show. All the best. Thanks very much. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Cheers, Chris.